we are good to go. You got a thumbs up? Okay. Yeah. Welcome to Good Going, the podcast for the change makers, risk takers, and overall do-gooders in the world. Today, I got to interview a very awesome guest, Dr. Patrick Kennel, who is the director of the Center for Intensive English Studies at Florida State University. In addition to holding a PhD in multicultural and multilingual education from FSU, Dr. Kennel has over 37 years of experience teaching English, not only at the CIES, but also in Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Denmark. His experience, both as a teacher of English and student of Danish, has taught him the value of using classroom knowledge in the real world. His philosophy in teaching English at CIES is, we teach English as a skill to be used, not a subject to be studied. Our conversation was really enlightening today. I really appreciated all of the advice that I got from him, especially considering that I'm going to go teach in about, as of, as of recording this episode, like two weeks. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I think a lot of the advice that I got from him today was super invaluable, and I'm really grateful to have gotten the chance to talk to him. So, Without further ado, here's Dr. Patrick Kennel. Well, thank you for meeting with me today. I'm oh. so excited to have you here. My pleasure, Mia. Yeah. So, uh, hello, Dr. Kennel. You're the the dean for the Center for Intensive English Studies, right? That's and you correct. you run the center at FSU. That's correct. So, I kind of just wanted to just start off with you, um, maybe telling me a little bit more about the CIES and like what your guys' mission is and what you guys do there. Okay. Well. Way back when, we, uh, we started uh, in 1980 as a research site, really, for the College of Ed and the, um, what was then multilingual, multicultural education. And it was a place for doc students to teach English, to, to take what they were, lear- they were learning in the classroom and apply it with international students yeah. and also do data collection for their dissertations and so on. That's how I came to be there. I got my master's there in uh, eighty. 889, and then um, went back for my PhD many years later in 96. And it was still like a practical like research mm-hmm. center at the time? It was only an intensive English program at that time. Okay. And so our mission at that time really was just to um, teach the kids English and um, really serve the graduate uh, students of the College of Education. But then that's changed over the years. Yeah. How is that? How is that kind of transformed into what it is now? We started to add programs. I took over as director in mm-hmm. um, 99, 2000, got my Ph.D. in 2002, and uh, officially became director then. I started to add different programs. So we, in 2005, we added uh, what is now the EAP program, English for Academic Purposes. And these are credit-bearing English classes for international students who are enrolled at Florida State many of whom are going to be teaching assistants, and so they need a very high level of um, English, spoken English especially, so we um, evaluate their spoken English. So like the English. kind of academic English as well is very different <clears throat> from like the casual English we speak every day. Exactly, and not only that, but uh, how do you teach American undergraduate students? Very different culturally from, say, their countries that they're coming from. So they've learned their uh, educational style and culture in their countries may be very hierarchical. And then you get to, to Florida State and trying to bring that culture, like I'm the professor, I'm the teacher, you're down here, you're the undergrad student, you you know, that's just not the culture here at Florida yeah. State. So 
So not only do we help them develop their spoken English, but their um, cultural knowledge on how to teach. Yeah, because they almost have to, for a lot of countries that have very opposite cultures to American culture, they almost have to do like a reset. This is this program is like kind of setting them up for their entire experience in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So so in what ways do you teach the students to kind of evolve themselves culturally and like learn new things? Is it done like in every day in class? And are there conversations had between you and students about like certain topics? Like how does that come to be? It's very organic. I mean, it yeah. happens on the fly most of the time in class and and during interactions between um, classes. Uh, they come to talk to me, for example, um, Dr. Kennel, I want to speak to you. Okay, that's correct grammatically, but you would say, Dr. Kennel, can I speak with you, please? Or could I speak with you? Right, you know, those so, modals. Mm-hmm, right, using the, could, the modals would, and, the, and the please, because we're preparing them to succeed after they leave CIS and to interact successfully with staff and faculty. So mm-hmm. they've got to learn the politeness of English and how to how to use it correctly. So that's a cultural piece. Um, in class, we've had students from certain countries snap their fingers oh, at teachers really? trying to get their attention. And uh, again, from their perspective, that's how you do it. And so we have what's called a culture timeout where the teacher, instead of getting angry and saying, do not do that to me. That's not how you behave. You know, we, we, we literally say, okay, culture time out, everybody. Let's and turn it into a very cool teaching moment. Yeah. We say, okay, in this culture, you wouldn't do that. You would snap your fingers to get the dog's attention, for example, or something like that. I think if I were in the position of the teacher, I would totally take that personally. Mm-hmm. 100%. I would, I would be like, oh, how dare they? How and, rude, right? Um, do you feel like in this career, you've learned to not take a lot of things personally as a result? <laughs> like you just can't, you have to look at it from like a larger, you know, point of view. To yeah. really analyze, okay, like, are they actually doing this to be rude or hurt my feelings? Or is this just, is there just a cultural gap here? Exactly. Just I always, um, it's it's always cultural first. That's what I look at, cultural. Because, honestly, I've been married to someone from a different culture uh, for over 30-something years, uh, 33 years. Uh, she's from Denmark. Mm-hmm. And, and uh just understanding, well, okay, so when I say culture, it's not only um, her being from Denmark, but her being a woman. Right. And the communication styles between men and women are also very different sometimes. And and so learning that and not taking her, uh, it, Danes tend to be very blunt when mm. they speak. And, and so she transcends that, that translates that bluntness into English. And, uh, you know, at first, when we first got married, I was very, you know, offended. Then I realized it was a cultural thing. So dealing with that, living in different countries, you know, putting myself out there and and making mistakes culturally has taught me to be very humble and very understanding of these students. So so if someone gets in my face, you know, gets in my space, you know, I, I have to think, okay, this is, he's from this country or this culture, and this is a normal behavior. Do you feel like, and I, I feel like this is a loaded question because maybe the answer is probably obviously yes, but do you feel like a lot of those cultural experiences you had abroad like really informed your teaching philosophy and your current kind of ability to work with students in the way that you do, yeah? 100%. It taught me a lot and it opened my eyes to uh, 
empathy, you know, being a much more empathetic and seeing where these other kids are coming right. from. And, I, I would feel like you'd never stop learning because there's always some new cultural facet of a different student of a different, you know, country's mm-hmm. culture that you're learning, you know, in real time, mm-hmm. constantly. Constantly. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about like a significant experience abroad? I'd really like to hear about it. Oh, gosh. You know, I've lived in, um, I started teaching in Turkey. I was backpacking and um, needed money, and somebody suggested I go teach English. And uh, I started it. I loved it right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I'm in class, and I'm teaching the Turkish students, and I ask a, a Turkish student a question, and, and she tilted her head back, closed her eyes, and did that. <laughs> that. That exp- like tutting. Yeah, that, that, that sound. That. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, what the hell? That's so disrespectful. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, so why did you do that? And, and so it led to this discussion. Well, in Turkey, to say no, you tilt your head back, close your eyes, and sometimes you make that sound. Huh. And so well, that was an eye-opener right there. Like, okay, you're not in Kansas anymore, man. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I started to learn that. Um other things that just, I mean, this is, this is kind of funny, but I was teaching the kids the alphabet and just, you know, A, B, C, D, and they were repeating because it was a very, very, very low level. And then I go X, Y, and I expected them to say Z, and they said Z. And I go, no, it's Z. And they go, no, it's Z. And I go, what? And I went back to the teacher's room, and I, I talked about that. And they, they go, well, it's Z. And I go, then I really, well, you're British. And British say Z, not no Z. No way. Yeah. So, Even like differences between other English-speaking cultures from us, there's so much that we don't realize. Oh my gosh! I mean, one of the uh, teachers. I'm in the. This is this is a true story. I'm in the teacher's room. I'm working on something. He's working. He asked me. The this teacher says, "Hey, um, Patrick, can I can I borrow rubber?" Mm-hmm. And I go, "Rubber." Um, Dude, I don't have one. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and he's looking at me. I, I, he goes, no, that eraser, that, that right there. That Oh, an eraser. You want an eraser. And so just learning. that, Just that difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you think about it, a lot of the, the students, the, I would think, that come to the center internationally, the English that they learn in school isn't necessarily American English. A lot of the time it's <clears throat> British English because that might be the standard abroad, mm-hmm. right? Or Or it's whatever form of English... You know, like in Africa, there's like African English, right? Exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah. And different words used. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, yeah. That's cool. What are the main highlights of your current job? What do you think are some of the most, like, rewarding experiences you've had in this career? It's so fulfilling because you're providing a tool to these students. You're giving them a tool that they can use Mm -hmm. to change their lives. I mean... Okay, so my second language is, is Danish. I lived in Denmark. My wife's Danish. And um, I learned Danish there as a, as a second language, went to school. And it was so powerful because with that gift of learning Danish, I was able to communicate with my mother-in-law who couldn't speak English. And, I mean, it just opened up the world, this whole family of the older relatives in that family who couldn't speak English. And, and, and that's the kind of thing we're doing. We're giving these students, I say it's a gift, you know, it's a great opportunity for them to, it opens so many doors for them. Yeah. No, I fully 
agree with that. When I was learning Spanish, and my Spanish is still a little rocky. I have moments that are, woo, that like I don't even think anybody would be able to understand what I was saying, but even myself. Um, <laughs> uh, but when I was young, I couldn't talk to my grandmother at all. Like it, I would be able to ask her like if I could use the restroom. I, I knew helado, which is Spanish for um, ice cream. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like I knew like a couple like base the words. Important the yeah. important things. Bathroom and ice cream. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I actually started properly learning, really learning Spanish in college. Because I, I had taken classes in high school, but I didn't take them seriously. And I also just think the American education system, when it comes to second language learning, we don't put a lot of emphasis on it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But when I kind of got to college and I took it more seriously, I was able to sit down with my grandmother and talk to her about her experiences growing up in Cuba and what it was like for her, her marriage, what happened when Castro took over, her escape to the United States. And I learned so much more about it. It was the first time I feel like I actually saw her as a person and not just like a a grandmother figure. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like our relationship since then has deepened so much. And I can actually call her on the phone and talk to her and catch up with her now. And it's like that's the impact that a second language can have. Mm -hmm. can really deepen a lot of like relationships and and create new connections that you didn't think were there. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's very, very rewarding from that perspective, you know. What we're doing makes a difference in, in people's lives. You know, I take that, that responsibility very seriously. And, I mean, we, the teachers understand, all the teachers understand the importance of what they're doing. And new teachers, we get new teachers, and they're quickly brought up to speed as well. You know, this is not just conversation, or it's, you know, it doesn't have impact. This, this has a lot of impact, so. Yeah. So speaking of new teachers, what advice do you think you'd give to new teachers who are starting to teach English as a second language or just teach language, period? I would say, number one, learn a second language yourself mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't know one. If you're teaching English and English is your native language, learn a second language at the same time because uh, it gives you empathy. It lets you understand how difficult what we would perceive as simple task that we're asking our students to do is really quite hard reading, writing, getting them up and having a conversation in front of uh, peers in the classroom. It's hard to be a risk taker. But if your students know that you, you've been there and you've either have learned or are learning a second language, they're much more apt to um, buy into what you're selling. Yeah, I think that's a really good, I think buying in is something that I was taught a lot when I was in my TESOL courses, just the idea of like, you kind of want to convince the students to invest in not only you, but the second language itself, show them what it can do for them. Exactly. When I'm teaching a class, or doing an exercise or, or doing grammar point or whatever, I always relate it to their career at the university or their education at the university. Then I move it beyond to their careers. Because it's not just learning English enough to get into the university to meet the, the low bar of the proficiency, but it's continuing to learn English afterwards. So a lot of international students will get a, a degree, master's, PhD, they got hired by a company, but then they'll never move up because their English is just not polished enough when they're writing emails or reports or what have you. Right. So they've got to be told and understand that it's a lifelong endeavor. It so is. It's a muscle that needs to get worked out <laughs> pretty consistently but. for you to keep it strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that does make a lot of sense. I think especially in America, we're very judgmental on, on the quality of people's <clears throat> English. And then we, 
we have this kind of internalized stigma and discrimination against versions of English that don't meet our expectation. I think academic English, mm-hmm. you know, has been for so long in this country the only accepted standard, right? And so, like, hearing other versions of English, I feel like employers regardless of whether it's right or wrong that they're discriminating because it's obviously not great it's just the reality that a lot of like international people are are, have to deal with once they kind of get into their careers here yeah Yeah, and and you know we yeah people say uh, oh yeah all all Englishes are good and they are but you have to have different registers know that okay in the workplace standard English is what is expected you know, outside, that's a different story. I mean, when I'm with my brothers, I'll speak a different English. Right. You know? I'm, I speak Spanglish with my family. Right. So. But yeah, I think just unfortunately the reality is, is like the, that is the English that, that employers look for. So great that, that you're leaning towards academic English when you're when you're teaching them because it's just right. what they're going to have to face once yeah. they're in, in their future careers and in the university. Yes. You mentioned in your just introduction little bio about you that you teach English for practical use. What is what is practical use? Do you focus more on speaking than you do on grammar or listening? I know that that the CIES generally tries to cover all the what the is it five different um, skills skills yeah. right when you're learning the second language. And we include grammar or grammaring in as a skill. Uh, you know, grammar is kind of like the mortar between the bricks. It holds everything together. You know, you have the skills of reading, writing, listening, and speaking. But in all of those, you need to understand the grammar in order to process the language correctly and to produce it correctly. So how do we uh, teach? We, we always say we teach English as a skill to be used, not as a subject to be studied. And so that changes everything if you think about it. If we're teaching a skill... It's like teaching somebody how to um, play the piano, guitar, how to swim, how to kick a soccer ball. You're working on muscle memory sometimes. Rote memorization is a, a necessity, doing something again and again and again until it becomes automatic. So we work towards automaticity in, in reading. We work on um, getting students to give formal presentations but also give unprepared uh, talks on a subject, social English in a, in a conversation, uh, you know, small talk, for example. Reading, we focus on reading skills, uh, pronoun reference, uh, what does he refer back to, what is this in this sentence referring to. Um, right, making those like larger inferences and judgments on what you're reading instead of just like reading without thought. Right. right. But we also work on extensive reading. Extensive reading is reading for pleasure. Basically, it's reading something where you know all the vocabulary, but you're reading and working toward that automaticity, that processing of the letters and sentences and paragraphs and so on, so that you're reading and you're you're kind of seeing pictures instead of decoding each word. That definitely helps with the academics if they start uh, processing these words faster because international students read at a rate that's less than half of what an American will read. And you did your, you did your, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did your PhD on, that was like what kind of the research that you did was on extensive reading in a second language. Do you feel like that really helps enjoyment of the second language and investing in the second language? Like is a huge factor in being willing and able to continue learning it like in in the long term? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
you know, that's why we bring in music and have them study lyrics. That's part of a reading course. You know, when I teach reading, I'll use songs. And, and when we uh, look at the lyrics of a song, and they really like that, poetry, anything that touches emotion will motivate these students to uh, want to learn and develop their English. Keeping it fun. Yes. Because yeah, again, just like a, you said, like a subject to be studied, that implies that it's like not very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. As somebody who's studied Spanish as a subject, mm -hmm. and I can think of a chart of conjugations <laughs> in my head, but I don't know how to practically apply them. There's a reason why I wasn't so invested until I got to the college level. And we started speaking Spanish in the classroom. We were kind of forced, not allowed to speak any English, speak only Spanish in the classroom, that direct method. And I feel like listening to music in Spanish, listening to podcasts in Spanish really altered my appreciation for the language and really mm -hmm. kept me going. Even when I was like, I, I suck at this. I think <laughs> the beginning stages are really hard mm -hmm. because it's just, it's embarrassing. Like, and I'm a perfectionist, so I'm the kind of person who like, if something comes out of my mouth and it's not perfect, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what did I just say? I'm so embarrassed. It, it's hard. And that's what we call the um, effective filter with, uh, with Krashen. Actually, uh, Stephen Krashen brought this uh, theory forward about students, if they're filter is too high, too up. Their effective filter, nothing gets in, nothing gets through. Right. So if they're uh, worried about being embarrassed or whatever, they're not going to bring in that language or, or produce that language. Um, whereas if you're having fun, your effective filter is low, and then you have the language being yeah. produced and being received. And it's uh, so, yeah, having fun in the classroom, playing games, Getting the students to trust you, that mm. you're not going to embarrass them, that we're all in this together, we're all making mistakes. One thing that we do that's unique, I think, at CIA is we have something called uh, beautiful mistakes. We, we tell the students, mistakes are good because it shows that you are pushing your boundaries, you're trying. Now, we also say, if you keep making the same mistakes over and over and over, you know, they become ugly Something's mistakes. Not... Yeah. And not, not every mistake, but... Just one or two, uh, focus on that, and within a seven-week period, uh, can you have you improved in that area, you know, using articles, for example, or... Yeah. For the most part, when, when you're speaking, you kind of want it to just come automatically, but in the moments when they need to correct those beautiful mistakes, they almost need to stop and, like, consciously make a choice to conjugate something this way or say it in this form. Exactly. And there's an art to mm -hmm. error correction or feedback, giving feedback. Um, for example, uh, if someone makes a mistake, and, and we've been studying past tense that week, and so I know as a teacher that they know what past tense should be, and we've studied regular and irregular verbs, and, and if they say, teacher, I, I, I go to the uh, cinema yesterday, and, you know, some people, some teachers have been taught to do, uh, to do a recast, which is, um, oh, you went to the cinema yesterday. Yes. And move on. That's well, me. My bad <laughs> habit. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't think that's a very effective way, and I think research has shown that out. We use what's called more of retrieval method where we, we use something like a, a what technique. Like, teacher, I go to the cinema yesterday. I'm sorry, what, what did you say? I go to the cinema. I, I'm sorry, I don't understand you. And by saying that, you're forcing the student to analyze what they've said. And then they, oh, yes, I'm sorry, I went to the cinema yesterday so it's much more powerful and effective right the self-correction mm -hmm. i bet there's some kind of like neuroscience explanation for the ways that like the pathways in our brain when we're passively just being like oh yeah went whatever mm -hmm. right versus 
consistently like telling ourselves, no, this is the correct way. This is the correct right, way. Right. If you're self-correcting. It's, yeah. it's all about like using that muscle correctly. <laughs> exactly. That's the only way it gets stronger because if you're using it incorrectly, it's going to it's going to end up aching tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. Boy, do I know. <laughs> yeah, I think those are probably the majority of the questions I have. Any any last remarks, anything um, promotional, anything for the CIES? <laughs> Uh, follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram. Hey, we say, you know, CIS is uh, where the world comes to learn English. And, I uh, love that. And that's, uh, that's exactly what it is. We've got about 21 different countries represented, oh, wow. 18 different languages. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic place where really the world comes together. And you see friendships form. Just amazing, you know, people right. from from China with people from Saudi Arabia and and uh it's really cool what you guys are doing thank you thank keep, you keep up the good work <laughs> keep you. keep that good going <laughs> all right thanks Mia I will. as the name of the podcast says I love it um but yeah thank you so much for meeting with me today I really appreciate like just getting the chance to talk to you and hear about your experiences teaching yeah You're welcome thank you for having me and Good luck with this podcast. I think it's a great thing you're doing. Here. This is, you know, the first episode, and I, I hope to kind of keep up that momentum and get to talk to a lot more people who are who are making change in the world, all which right. I think is exactly what you're doing. You're doing a great job at it. Thank you. So, all right. Uh, bye. Bye. <laughs> all right.